Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Impeachment activity has been frenetic, and though we're inundated with news updates, many Americans are still left with more questions than answers. Will subpoenas be enforced in light of the administration's lack of compliance? How will Senator Mitch McConnell respond if the House passes articles of impeachment? Drew Lippman moderates a conversation with Will Mushella, Nadim Shami, and Greg Brower, in which they put the current impeachment proceedings into historical context and provide insight into where the process is heading. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. Today's subject is impeachment. I'm Drew Littman, and I'm here with my colleagues Will Michella, Nadim El-Shami, and Greg Brower. Gentlemen, let's jump right in. Will, what is an impeachment inquiry, which is the stage that I understand we're at now? Sure. Well, at its fundamental basis here is that the House is exercising its constitutional authority to uh, review whether uh, a particular official, in this case the president, has committed a treason, bribery, or really in this case a high crime or misdemeanor. This inquiry is a little bit uh, different from past inquiries, which I think we'll talk about, but as stated by the leadership in the House, that's what they're engaging in. And Nadim, what's going on behind closed doors in the House? You're our closed doors in the House guy. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's my specialty. Um, uh, what is happening currently is that um, counsel for both the Republicans and the Democrats are listening and questioning witnesses, one witness at a time. Each side gets an hour and sometimes it's it's expanded. There are members from three committees uh, who are in the room uh, during uh, during this process. And really, you do this for, for one very important reason, is to guarantee that the testimony uh, of these witnesses is not coordinated in any way. Greg, do the Republicans in the House have a valid complaint about the process? Nadim explained it uh, uh, from Democrats' point of view. I don't think so. As Nadim said, there are both Republican and Democrat members and staff who are behind the closed-door uh, interview sessions. Uh, and uh, this is the way uh, investigations work. And interestingly, uh, Republican uh, members, former members like uh, Lindsey Graham, the senator, uh, Trey Gowdy from the House, former House member, have all been on the record in the past explaining exactly why in prior situations it was so important to have closed-door uh, interviews. And so there's nothing unfair about this. I would say, though, that uh, two things. One is it's extremely important for the Democrats to be very sensitive to allegations of unfairness and lack of due process. That's not to say that some on the right uh, won't uh, complain no matter what. But if folks in the middle uh, and other neutral observers think the process is unfair, the majority has a problem. So they need to be careful about that. And and then secondly, the point I think uh, needs to be emphasized that before the president is impeached, if it gets to that point, everything that has happened behind closed doors will be made available to all of the House members and most of it will be made public. So no one is going to be impeached based upon secret evidence. That's right. not what's happening. Here. Right. Will, you're leaning forward. Well, I have a little bit of a disagreement. Um, closed door 
investigations, as Greg says, are nothing new. But the examples that the Democrats have pointed to, like the Benghazi investigation that Greg alluded to, were not impeachment inquiries. The problem here is that the Democrats have said that they're doing an impeachment inquiry, but they're not using the impeachment uh, authority that's been granted to the House under the Constitution. What they're really doing is using their general oversight authority under House rules. And so the rhetoric about engaging in an impeachment is not matching up with the procedural reality. And in past impeachments, a couple things have always occurred. Um, in the Clinton impeachment and in the Nixon impeachment inquiries, the House has blessed those with a resolution granting specific authority to the House Judiciary Committee and the House Judiciary Committee then adopted rules that provided certain process benefits to both the minority uh, and to the president. That hasn't happened in this case. And and while I agree with both Greg and Nadim that investigations um, where classic deposition techniques and, and document review techniques are used and, and kept secret don't of- offend me because I did that as an oversight counsel in the House. Um, I'm very familiar with the impeachment procedures, having been the parliamentarian of the House Judiciary Committee during one of those, but the rhetoric that they are currently engaged in an impeachment inquiry doesn't match up with what has occurred in the past. And from that perspective, I think the Republicans have a valid issue. Nadim, impeachment inquiry is is a term that the speaker is using, but it's not a legal term per se. It's certainly not a constitutional term. No, it is not. And this is semantics. Uh, The role that the Judiciary Committee will play in this uh, process is going to be well known uh, and is going to fall within what uh, my colleague here, Will, was was describing. What the three committees involved in the current inquiry, uh, impeachment, quote-unquote inquiry or whatever you wish to call it, is, is, is a start of a process where they will provide reports and information to the Judiciary Committee that will then begin to determine whether there is an impeachable offense. And if there is, then they will ha- hold public hearings and then they will draft the articles of impeachment. So clearly the purview of the Oversight Committee, for example, is wide and large, and they are able to uh, to do this. And until it gets it to the Judiciary Committee, then the process that Will was talking about is, is how we'll proceed. Let's, let's shift a little bit, if we can. Um, this week, two associates of Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, the, the lawyer for the president or a lawyer for President Trump, claimed uh, executive privilege uh, in a proceeding to cover their beha- activities with respect to Ukraine and and the search for dirt on Joe Biden. A lot of people in the administration and some people who have never worked for the president in the White House are claiming executive privilege in different circumstances. Typically, it's when Congress calls them to testify, but it can also be in court proceedings. Greg, do you have a sense of who can invoke executive privilege or is the, is the term being stretched too far? It is in an inexplicable and bizarre way. If I was still a federal prosecutor, I guess I would just assume that every criminal defendant I prosecute will now 
blurt out the words executive privilege at some point to, uh, I don't know, avoid having to um, cooperate with the proceeding. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but it, it is only the president who can assert executive privilege. And what we have seen over the last several months is the White House attempt to uh, attempt to direct even former officials and those, as you point out, who have never served in government that say somehow cannot share with Congress information because of executive privilege. That is what I would call an aspirational <laughs> effort on the White House's part. Uh, and um, uh, for the most part, th- that that effort has been uh, without any valid legal constitutional underpinning. So, so for the benefit of our listeners, maybe we should just step back a little bit and and define executive privilege. And and before you do that, if you can also, you mentioned uh, underpinnings of executive privilege. Executive privilege is not a doctrine described in a statute much less the Constitution. It's a doctrine that's widely, almost like a more recent common law doctrine that's widely accepted. Is that accurate? I think that's fair to say. It arguably has constitutional underpinnings in terms of separation Mm -hmm. of powers, Mm -hmm. but it's not really spelled out in the Constitution. But the basic concept is that there are certain communications that the chief executive, the president has with uh, his advisors, cabinet members, et cetera, that – should be privileged from public uh, exposure, mm-hmm. uh, not unlike the attorney-client privilege that is is more commonly asserted in, in lit- ordinary litigation. So the president can deliberate freely with his advisors without fear that the deliberations will be exposed. That would discourage them from deliberating freely, I suppose. Exactly. And I, I think that's a concept that most everyone can understand and appreciate. But as you pointed out earlier, there seems to be a stretching of that concept beyond what uh, – um, precedent and, frankly, logic would would allow for here. Uh, Nadim, if I can jump back to you, will Democrats expand the scope of the impeachment proceeding beyond Ukraine? That may be a legal question or it may be a political question. I'm not, I'm not sure. But Democrats were contemplating impeachment before the Ukraine story ever came out. And, and there's a long list of potential impeachable offenses, I think. So, so do they expand? Does it help politically to keep it narrow? Or would it help politically to broaden it? What happened in terms of educating the American people? Which course makes more sense? Well, look, it, clearly there has been um, some members of the Democratic caucus who have been calling for impeachment from, from day one. And, uh, and, and while, um, you know, they had some votes, attempted votes on the floor and so on. Where we are today with the Ukraine incident and perhaps um, other uh, issues related to Ukraine, um, that is the most um, salient um, point of investigation that could lead to impeachment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is clear uh, to explain. uh, It is clear to investigate. You do have witnesses coming forward uh, and uh, corroborating both the transcript from the White House and the whistleblower complaint. Uh, And and from there, uh, wherever the road uh, leads Democrats uh, when they go to the Judiciary Committee um, um, is is to be determined. But but I think the focus will remain on Ukraine and things uh, surrounding Ukraine. So so let me ask a practical question, uh, a nuts and bolts question. And Will, you may have an opinion on this. Greg, you may. Will Democrats seek to enforce subpoenas in court? Republicans associated with the administration have resisted subpoenas so far. Career uh, 
employees in the administration have been willing to testify, but members of Congress haven't been able to interview other people who may have relevant information. Is this where the rubber meets the road, the enforcement of these subpoenas? Because right now, it looks like the Democrats are almost bluffing when they, when they issue subpoenas. There's no follow-up. Thoughts? Well, I'm not sure that's entirely true, at least in two other circumstances that I know of. Uh, Democrats are trying to enforce subpoenas, not with regard to this Ukraine-related impeachment inquiry, but um, uh, other committees are attempting to get at the underlying grand jury material involved in the Mueller case, and that case is now before the D.C. Circuit. And then um, another committee is attempting to enforce a subpoena against the accounting firm um, hired by President Trump to get at his uh, tax records. So those efforts are ongoing. They're unrelated to the Im- impeachment inquiry. Uh, I think that um, uh, at least if I read between the lines of what Chairman Schiff and others have said is that um, if the White House uh, administration officials do not comply, they're going to view that uh, potentially as obstruction of their inquiry, and that in and of itself may form the basis of an article of impeachment. And so it's quite possible that at least with regard to the what we're calling the impeachment inquiry, they don't feel the need to uh, enforce their subpoenas because they think that the president and his senior advisors have uh, an obligation to comply. And if they don't comply, it'll just form the basis of uh, an article of impeachment. In 1991, I was the staff director of a House subcommittee. Democrats were in the majority in the House. We had a Republican president, George H.W. Bush. Uh, We were aggressive in holding hearings and doing oversight. It was an oversight subcommittee. We threatened subpoenas routinely uh, and went through an internal process to vet whether we were in a position where it would make sense to issue a subpoena. We found that threatening subpoenas was always sufficient to get us the witnesses or the documents we wanted. We never actually had to issue a subpoena. Am I right in saying that this level or sort of comprehensive approach, resistance to subpoenas generally, is highly unusual? It appears that way to me, but you'd be in a better position to say, Will. Well, I've seen it from administrations of both parties resist subpoenas. Um, I've seen... um, you know, during the Ken Starr investigation, um, you know, Greg mentioned uh, that he thought the current claims of executive privilege were unfounded. Um, the Clinton Justice Department fought Ken Starr on behalf of the Secret Service and claimed something called protective function privilege. Uh, the D.C. that case ultimately went to the D.C. Circuit, and they basically said. Um, Nice try, but you can't make up privileges. So this is not new. It's new you know, to this administration, but these battles have gone back for years. George Washington even refused to provide documents to Congress regarding the St. Clair expedition. And so uh, from our first president to the current president, the separation of powers battles have occurred. There have been some efforts to test the limits of the law. And so um, I'm, not, I'm not surprised by it. And uh, I think that this won't be the last time uh, the, the limits of the law are tested. What, what I would say is, though, I think both the Congress and the administration have an obligation to engage 
uh, in an accommodation process. They should understand the information needs of each, and before it gets to the third branch, they ought to attempt to resolve their uh, uh, differences, understanding that each has equities here, um, uh, both legitimate. Thanks. Well, I, I just want to draw a line under that. I think you made an important point for the benefit of our clients, which is we're seeing a drama play out publicly where uh, one side is in one corner, the other side is in the other corner. But typically what we see is a negotiated solution in these cases. Maybe some of the documents are provided, not all. Maybe someone testifies under certain circumstances, not all. Is that your experience? That's absolutely right. And when we have clients in just a regular oversight proceeding, and we've got uh, multiple clients in oversight proceedings right now, we engage in that kind of back and forth with uh, committee staff and members all the time. Uh, Impeachment is a bit unusual, and so um, that's why it's on uh, the the news every day. But there are uh, there is oversight. There are investigations going on as we speak, um, and there is a negotiation process, a back and forth. Um, it usually behooves the recipient of a document request or a subpoena to um, uh, work to accommodate the needs of Congress where it can and explain why it can't. Oftentimes, you'll find a receptive ear for those conducting the oversight. Greg, if you could just check me on this um, We'll mention Ken Starr uh, and, and the investigation of Bill Clinton, which led to the Clinton impeachment in, in 1998. Do I recall correctly that, that Bill Clinton testified before the grand jury in that investigation, this grand jury impaneled by Starr? He did testify before the grand jury, and, and that testimony was was part of the, the case against him ultimately during the impeachment proceeding. Right. Uh, it was a very um, – different approach that the Clinton administration and the president himself took uh, with respect to the Starr investigation versus the more recent Mueller investigation and the what turned out to be the impeachment proceeding, uh, which is potentially uh, coming down here. The Clinton administration and the president himself seemed to, you know, reluctantly to be sure, but nevertheless mostly cooperate and mostly try to do the business of the administration despite the fact that this existential challenge was facing it. Here we see the president and, and the White House and the administration writ large basically just mounting a frontal assault, first on the Mueller investigation itself and now on the potential for impeachment. There's, there's no pretending it's not happening and doing the country's business. Uh, Nadim, can you tell us a little bit about how you see the White House's response and I'm thinking not so much of the legal response, which we've been talking about, but, but political response, communications response to impeachment now being different from or maybe similar to, but I think mostly different from, the way the Clinton White House handled this in 1998. I, I worked on Whitewater hearings in the Senate, so I have uh, – you know, I bear the scars of that experience. But you were a comms professional for so long, you probably have some perspective on this. Uh, yes. Uh, well, clearly this White House has decided that there will be no cooperation. There will be no discussion with uh, co- uh, Congress. There will be no attempt to accommodate Congress. Um, and it gets to a point for congressional committees uh, and uh, and staff on the committee to, to say then what's the next step. 
Um, and that's when you take it to a uh, really to a communications, to a legal process, but also to a communications uh, strategy. And that's what you're seeing throughout the press. And it's playing in uh, in the news throughout. You see Democrats going and talking to um, you know to reporters and, and and explaining why this White House is um, uh, is not cooperating uh, and and what that's going to uh, what's that going to mean for example in an impeachment inquiry and perhaps um, uh, lead to uh, articles of impeachment so yeah it is uh, currently a communication strategy and 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 whether something will will occur. Uh, uh, on uh, on the judiciary side, um, uh, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. But look, w- one thing that is that is kind of forgotten in in, in, in what's happening uh, at the moment, uh, where the White House is is uh, is not cooperating, there are witnesses coming forward, mm-hmm. and they are talking to uh, to career com- employees, typically. career employees, yeah. and 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 usually when. Uh, this happens, then others in the White House, non-career employees, right, political appointees, are going to look around and say, "Well, perhaps we should begin to cooperate." Well, that, that was the case with Ambassador Sondland, I think, yeah. um, who was a political appointee, but but realized that the that the career folks around him were going to tell their versions of the story that he was in the middle of. But but let me ask you more specifically, not about the uh, congressional messaging, but the White House messaging. The Clinton White House was quite disciplined yes. in, in how they dealt with impeachment, but also how they didn't deal with impeachment. And I think Greg alluded to this a, a minute ago, because they set up a sort of two-track system. They were facing what to them was a unique process, because the only president yeah. precedent was the Nixon impeachment, and Nixon wound up resigning. Very different set of circumstances. Now we have the example of the Clinton impeachment. The White House today seems to be operating very differently. Can you illuminate that a little bit? Yeah, they're operating under the, uh, the, the Trump doctrine, uh, which is to protect the president at all and every cost. Um, and and uh, and the president is going to be the one who is driving the communication strategy. Uh, he believes that he is his best protector, his best communicator, and everything around him is going to flow from there. And he is going to give directions to members of Congress, to his staff, uh, and that's how things are going to get done. Whereas Bill Clinton didn't comment on impeachment when the proceeding was pending. Yeah. Neither did Al Gore. They, they left that for surrogates, and Bill Clinton continued essentially to play the role of president and act presidential to the best of his ability at that time. That's right. And, and look, and, and, and currently at the moment, for our clients who are very interested in USMCA, for example, the trade the, agreement, the, the trade agreement, uh, the, the individual who was driving the discussion with Democrats is Ambassador Lighthizer. It is really not the president. The president may put out a tweet saying, well, Democrats need to vote for it or we're getting close. But he's not involved in the in the minutia of the discussions where someone like uh, like a President Clinton was involved in negotiations, direct negotiations with former Speaker Gingrich. Um, and his staff was dealing with the impeachment inquiry mm-hmm. and going on mm-hmm. the press, and he had his own surrogates. Mm-hmm. But again, the, the, the president is focused on one issue and one issue only at the moment, which is impeachment. And that's that's where we are. Greg, uh, the process we've been talking about, the House, 
but it's the Senate that would hold a trial if the House votes to impeach. Can you preview what that would look like, what that would look like process-wise, and where that might end up? Sure. There, there's very little guidance um, at all in the Constitution about how a Senate trial, impeachment trial, would work. The Senate has done several impeachment trials over the years. Only uh, two of a sitting president, President the first President Johnson, of course, and then President Clinton, as we've been discussing. Um, but basically, it takes on the form of the articles of impeachment being delivered, not unlike a criminal indictment, mm-hmm. uh, to the Senate. Uh, in the case of a president, uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court presides as the judge, if you will, uh, right. over the Senate trial. Um, the House appoints uh, prosecutors, which are called managers in this mm-hmm. context, mm-hmm. to present the case. And essentially, the case is presented by the House managers uh, in uh, much in the way that a, a, a indictment, a criminal case would be presented. Right. The uh, target of the indictment, in this case, the president, uh, uh, through his own counsel, um, typically outside counsel hired for this purpose, uh, presents uh, evidence on behalf of the defense, including the calling of witnesses, presentation of documentary evidence, whatever they, they want to present. The, again, the chief justice presides all, over all of that, deciding whatever motions might be uh, made with respect to the evidence and the process. Uh, and that at the end of that, the, the Senate votes like a jury. And as we know from history, it's actually a guilty or not guilty vote that each senator makes. And it is required two-thirds of, of the senators present must vote to um, – must vote guilty in order to – uh, in effect, remove the the president from office, and that's basically the process. Uh, it's up to the the majority leader of the Senate and the Chief Justice to kind of work out all of the details in between. So, so uh, for me, as a former Senate guy and a political person, your mention of two thirds rings bells, basically, because then you at some point you, it becomes a matter of vote counting. There are forty seven Democrats in the Senate. If Trump were to be removed, it would only be because at least 20 Republicans voted to remove him, which gets me to a question I, I want to put to Nadim. There's a lot of talk about how this affects the president. Is it good? Is it bad? Sometimes the president says, this is great for me politically. I raise a lot of money off it. But, but who else has a lot at stake here? And what I'm really wondering is who has a lot to lose? I don't think it's House moderates. But what about folks in the Senate? Well, no, I think it is. I think it's it's it's. This has to be a professionally run process. Um, there are those Democrats, thirty plus Democrats, who are elected from uh, districts that President Trump, for example, won in twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Democrats who are uh, up in the Senate from tough states, and then you have uh, Democratic candidates in the Senate, for example in Colorado and other places Mm -hmm. as well, um, who are running against current senators um, and trying to unseat them. So if you look at the whole political agenda, right, you have one side saying this is actually good for us and you have the other side saying, no, this is actually good for us. Uh, We're going to attack the moderates. We're going to attack those from uh, tough districts and tough states. We don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't know how this is going to play out. We don't know what more information is going to actually come out. We don't know what the president's reaction is going to be and his allies' reactions is going to be. And that's the unfortunate thing. And I think that's why the process has to play itself out. 
Thank you. Uh, Greg, let me try and end with, with this question, although Nadim, you certainly should feel free to jump in. What are the lessons for our clients with respect to oversight? Of course, we're talking about more conventional oversight, but this is sort of like the oversight Super Bowl. So what do we learn from this? <laughs> well, I guess one thing is that currently the Capitol Hill is obviously uh, focused in very large part on impeachment. Uh, even though it's a it's a House game at this point and it's not in the Senate, senators are obviously spending a lot of time thinking about the politics, et cetera, and preparing for what looks like an inevitable impeachment trial. And as a result, there's not a whole lot getting done mm-hmm. on the Hill. I, mm-hmm. I, I think, though, that uh, Nadim uh, w- would say there wasn't a whole lot uh, being done before uh, this um, impeachment uh, activity started. But I think for our, for our clients, it's um, – it is uh, an example of uh, just how partisan things are on the Hill right now uh, and uh, how difficult it is to get anything done. I think if you're, if you're playing defense, it's a great environment because chances are what you don't want to have happen won't happen. If you're playing offense and you really want to get legislation done, it's a tough environment. Would it be fair to say that, that this is part of, in some ways, the Trump circumstances are unique, but, but a larger trend toward oversight because that's what you can do with divided control and that's what seems logical to do in an, a polarized environment so that we might be seeing – this eclipses everything else now, but we might be seeing more aggressive oversight in the future. Nadim? No, I think that's, that's absolutely right. But let me, let me just add a couple, couple of quick points. One, there are some must-do, uh, must-pass legislation um, that, that, that this Congress and this president – uh, must must get done. Uh, funding the government, dealing with some of the health deadline of November twenty first. Twenty first, exactly. Um, you know, some health extenders legislation. There is a strong desire to get USMCA done, which would be a big bipartisan victory for for everyone, um, and some other um, other legislation as well. But in terms of oversight, as you get closer to the election next year. Um, the committees are going to be uh, more geared up towards oversight, and there's going to be more coordination between uh, the House and the Senate Democrats, the House and the Senate Republicans, in order to to uh, to, to to proceed in that fashion. Because look, it's an election year; uh, it's very uh, tough um, to get something um, uh, big accomplished. Mm-hmm. Some smaller legislation will, but yes, you're right. Oversight is is going to be. Um, um, on the rise over the next year. You also have six Democratic senators, I think, still running for president. And so this process is sort of a touchstone for them. It's not like all the candidates are governors or mayors and, and wholly outside the process. So it could play in the presidential race, I suppose, in ways that we can't anticipate right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fellas, thank you very much. Will, Nadim, Greg, you've offered a lot of terrific insights here. And that's our Brownstein podcast on impeachment. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farbershreck podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.